Welcome to Westside. We are in a sermon series talking about sexual desire, talking about sex. If you're visiting here today, you're either here because you heard that we were talking about this or you had no clue that we're talking about this. And so again, welcome to Westside. We're glad you're here. We, uh, we don't talk about this kind of stuff every week, okay? But we're, we just feel like it's it's important enough for us to take some time and talk about it. Um, I, have, I have a confession. I said this was going to be a three-week sermon series. It's, it, I knew it was going to be a tall order to fit everything I wanted to say into three weeks. A lot has been left on the cutting room floor. Um, but I just felt like after prepping for today, I just felt like I couldn't tie it up in a bow as cleanly as I wanted to today. So we're going to do a little bit more next Sunday, okay? So it's turning into a... <laughs> don't clap, weirdo. That was weird. <laughs> <laughs> We're turning into a four-week four thing, and actually next week isn't going to be all about it. It's going to kind of be like, because I had a plan already for next week, so next week's going to kind of be a weird combination of like Christmas and Thanksgiving and sex, okay? So I, that's just what it's going to look like, all right? It's going to be like the idea of a turducken, all right? That's what it's going to be like. So you don't want to miss next week because we're just going to kind of wrap it up. So if I don't kind of get, you know, if I don't land the plane, so to speak, um, you know, I'm, I'm really hoping to do that next week. Um, so, uh, but I'm, I'm, I've, it's been fun for me, but I've also, it's like I've been reading, I've, t- I've read tons of books. And I'm kind of actually excited to get out of this sermon series because everywhere I go, I bring my books with me. And I got this picture. I took a picture of me studying at Starbucks. This is West 11 Starbucks. <laughs> And I'm like, got all my books there, and I'm like, I think people think I'm a pervert here. At, <laughs> they are staring at me with all of my books. Um, so anyways, uh, by the way, a lot of, the, a lot of the, the stuff I've been reading, I made sure I put on our website. And under, you can go to like information, I think it says pastor's recommendations, and just tons of books, and even some links to some websites of some really helpful um, places to, to, to think and di- dive deeper into a lot of the stuff we talked about. But anyways, if you've missed the other weeks, listen, I'm building a case. I'm building a case. And if you haven't listened to some of the previous weeks, you, you really need to. Otherwise, it's gonna, this is going to be a little bit out of context. And, and you might be tempted to think that the Christian basis for sexual ethics is based on rules. That God gave us some rules and then we're supposed to follow those rules if we're going to like stay good and be good and be lovable or liked by him. And that just couldn't be further from the truth. Um, so we just talked about how, you know, all sorts of things. We talked about how Jesus in this issue and in all issues really is going for the heart. He's going for the heart in this issue. He's going for all the upstream stuff because he knows it's going gonna, it's gonna to work its way downstream into all sorts of areas of our life, including our sexual desires and our bodies and what we're supposed to do with that. Also, Jesus is inviting his followers to participate in an alternate kingdom. And what's, what I want to be clear about is he's, he's inviting his followers to, be, to participate in this alternate kingdom. So what we're not doing here is I'm not trying to use the Bible to heap shame on anyone. I'm not trying to use the Bible to, to you know, say this is how you know, all everybody in society should view sexual desire. However, however, what we are asking is we're saying, hey, for somebody that follows Jesus, for somebody that claims that he's Lord over the cosmos and Lord over my body and Lord over everything, and that if we really have a vision for what, what, why he made this world and where it's all headed, that for those of us that follow Jesus, what are we supposed to do with these, this beautiful gift that God has given us, our sexual desires, our, our bodies? Um, what are we supposed to do with it? So if you're not a Christian here today, listen, we, we're so glad you're here and you are really in the right place. P- picture this as a way to listen in on some, on some Christians having a discussion about what are we to do with this? How are we supposed to um, be thinking about our sexual desire? Another thing we have to remember is Jesus has grace for the struggle. 
He's got grace for the struggle. He knows, he knows. And then next, Jesus is a friend of, senior, uh, of, of sinners. It's seniors too, yes, but uh, sinners, yes. Um, it's just so incredible when you think about, when you read about Jesus in the New Testament, how, how fond he is of sexual failures how much room he makes for people who are sexually confused, people with sexual past, but you know, with, with brokenness in their past, just how much space he creates and how he invites them to the table. Um, he is a friend of sinners. That's good for all of us. Uh, so we've talked about how Jesus doesn't say uh, fear sexual desire. That's one way that people have dealt with sexual desire in, in the world. And unfortunately, especially Christians through the centuries have taken this approach that we're supposed to be fearful of desire. It's so powerful that it might just burn the whole house down. So let's just snuff it out. Let's just, let's just eradicate it. Um, and that's unfortunate, and that's, you know, some of us grew up in the 80s and 90s, and if you grew up in the 80s and 90s in, in church, then you, you, you know, you know, there was this thing called, that we're looking back on now called purity culture, that, which was this sort of strange thing that where it was like, hey, if, as long as you stay pure, you know, like, and don't have sex before marriage, then everything's going to be great for you. And if you do do that, then, oh, gosh, you're just a little bit sort of like a second-class Christian. And a lot of people sort of came out of that, that time feeling like that. And uh, that isn't what Jesus is saying. Also, Jesus is also not saying, he doesn't say follow your sexual desire, which this is where a lot of, the, a lot of people in our culture are at today uh, when we view sexual desire is that it's natural. It's just like, a, you know, it's, and then you're just supposed to feed it. You're supposed to champion it and you're supposed to follow it. That's, that's what it means to be an authentic self, an authentic person. Um, but as we've talked about these past weeks, you know, we're 50 years deep. It's been 50 years since the summer of 69 when the sexual revolution launched. And the sexual revolution promised sexual freedom. It promised, hey, we're all just going to get rid of all those old puritanical ideas of sexual boundaries. And we're just going to be free. And what we're seeing today is that it hasn't left people free. It's actually left people in more bondage than ever before and more disillusionment than ever before. So in the midst of that, Jesus says, don't fear sexual desire, don't follow sexual desire. Jesus says, give me your desires. Give me your desires and I will bring healing and restoration. Submit your desires and I'll bring healing and wholeness and restoration. And so we've, we, I got a little nerdy on you, did some like sort of math problems, but this is, this is Jesus's math, uh, math equation for what this looks like. It's vision plus power, not willpower, Vision for what sex is all about, why God created it, plus power plus practices equals restoration. So that's sort of the formula that we're working off of. That's my thesis. And last week, we kind of tackled the vision thing. We said, you know, for the Christian, it doesn't start with rules. It starts with our new identities in Christ. That's where it starts. That we're new creatures in Christ. And so therefore, our sexual ethics flow out of that. And if you don't get that, then the kind of like what Christians, how Christians use sex, it's, you're going to be tempted to think that it's just a bunch of nonsense. But if you get that it's like flowing out, a new, out of a new identity, it starts to make sense. And, you know, I, I can't recap, but basically we said that, it, you know, sex is a signpost to the greater story of intimacy and unity that we truly long for. We said it's about holistic integration. It's tied to our transformation. And then it, it's a witness to the world. That's what we talked about last week. So today um, we're going to just cover, going to look at some special issues. Uh, but we have to remember something. Remember, this is all about formation. It's about sexual formation. Um, it's not about just like, here's some rules that we're supposed to follow. It's asking the question, if sexual desire is beautiful, like God created it to be, and it's powerful, it actually has the ability to transform us and shape us. So we have to ask the question, we have to ask the question, who am I becoming by what I'm doing? 
Not just, is this a, on the list of sins or not? We, we have to go further than that. We have to say, who am I becoming? How is this forming me? And so I'll take you back to this passage of scripture um, because every time I preach, we, we're a church where we make sure that we read the scripture. I got to be honest though, we're going to be light on scripture today because I want to tackle some like cultural issues that we're, everyone's just all wrestling with right now and just bring a Christian perspective to it. Um, but I want to take you back to where we started because Jesus says something so profound. It was just something that nobody expected Jesus to say. It's back in Matthew. And Jesus says things like this all throughout the the New Testament. But, you know, they're having this discussion about, like, you know, how you become impure. And, like, there was these group of people called the Pharisees, and they were frustrated that the disciples weren't washing their hands before they ate because it was, like, made them um, impure. And Jesus gets into this discussion with them, trying to help them see that it's not the... The thing that doesn't make us impure isn't, it's not outside in sort of things that make us impure, but it's actually the other way around. It's, it's stuff that starts on the inside and it works its way out. And so this is what Jesus says. His disciples are asking him questions and he says this, Matthew 15, verse 19, he says, from the heart, from the heart come evil thoughts, which you're like, wait a minute, no, no, no. Evil thoughts come from your brain, Jesus. Like, didn't you take anatomy, you know, like... They come from the brain. They don't come from the heart. Jesus is like, hold on. No, no, no. Listen. No, all those things, it, it, comes from, it comes from the heart. Evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, slander. No, no, no. Slander comes from your mouth, Jesus. And, and Jesus says, no, no, no. Slander, what comes from your mouth, it starts in the heart. He's trying to help us understand something. He says, these are what defile you. Eating with unwashed hands will never defile you. And that word defile is kind of weird because it's, I mean, it, it kind of alludes to the fact that it makes us unclean. And that's, that's, that's in the context of what Jesus is saying. But Jesus is also sort of saying that it's the stuff on the inside that when it, it doesn't just like make us dirty when it comes out, it actually has the power to form us, de, to either form us or deform us. And so think of Gollum in Lord of the Rings, right? He was a hobbit, but then he had the ring for so long that it sort of like, sort of deformed him in a way, away from who he truly was supposed to be into something that, into something that, was, that, was, that, was, that was hurtful and broken. And the same thing is true with us. So there's these powerful things that God created that have the power to form us, have the power to deform us. And so we just have to ask the question, um, when it comes to sexual desire, the Bible talks about sex not primarily because it's, it's bad, sex is bad and it's trying to warn us, but it's because sex is so good and it's trying to form us, trying to form us deeply. So it's all about that question, who am I becoming by what I'm doing? So today, I just want to take a couple perspectives on some current issues, some tension points in our culture. Uh, and so first, I want to talk about pornography. Um, I know of no other struggle that so plagues and produces shame for both men and women in our culture than the struggle of pornography. I shared a couple of weeks ago just a little bit of my story, but I just, you know, I, I can't share it again, but, you know, I just shared just, you know, where I got introduced to pornography as a, as a young person and just, and, I, and it's funny, when I was growing up, it was so hard it's just incredible how the world has changed. We really are at, in a new era of time where when I was younger, it, you had to work hard to try to find it and get it. And now you have to work hard to, to stay away. You have to work hard to, you actually have to like be so intentional to put up filters and you know, blockers and be intentional about like what you're doing and where you're going that it's uh, because it's just everywhere and it's so accessible because of the internet. 
Um, I do not even need to share the statistics with you because I, we, we, we've been around enough now and people are starting to take notice now that, it, that, the, the, that, that pornography in our culture is, is an epidemic. It's an epidemic. Um, it's a, it's in some, some legislators have even called it a humanitarian crisis. <laughs> That it's that big of a deal, so pervasive just in our lives. And, uh, you know, it's kind of actually become so pervasive that it's like, it's kind of like uh, an assumption that if you're a human being, you're probably um, looking at porn in some sort of way. In fact, probably one of the most countercultural things you can do in our society today is to, is to not be looking at porn and to have boundaries around you. That, and if you say that to somebody, they'd be like, they'd be like, Really? Like, whoa, that's different, man. You're strange, you know? Because it's just such an assumption. Um, it's just so true that we have now, for, for, for a decade, have so marinated our brains in viewing unrealistic, oftentimes violent, misogynistic porn that we're starting to see the effects in our culture. It's just starting to come out everywhere. Um, 98, or sorry, 68% uh, of divorce cases involved one party meeting a new lover over the internet. This is statistics from all the, you know, they get you know, annually all the lawyers that get together and, and that do divorces, they, you know, they share all these statistics. 68% of divorce cases involved one party meeting a new lover over the internet. 56 involved one party having, quote, an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. Um, pornography is destroying people's lives. It just is destroying their relationships. Um, and there's this progression. This is how it happens. And we kind of talked about this last week, but when, when you remove sex from its design, when you remove sexual desire from its creator, then things will break down because the progression goes like this. If you, first it starts with separating sex and sexual desire from its creator, from its maker. And then it, then it goes into separating it from its design and purpose. And now it kind of like, now the purpose and design for it is fuzzy. And then that moves into separating sex from marriage and procreation. And then the very next step after that is separating sex from partnership and responsibility, which is like hookup culture that we have in our, in our world today. Then the next step is separating sex from another person. So we, the next progression is we separate it from others. And then the next step after that is separating sex from even our own bodies, which we see so, so much of now where people are moving to just online relationships and online fantasy worlds in order for them to, to, to feel loved and feel whole. And now it doesn't even need another person anymore. It just needs some other, some, you know, some, some fantasy world out there. And this is the progression that happens where then now sex is reduced to physicality, experience, and technique, all of which are great at selling products, but none of which are actually build intimacy, which is the very thing that we all desperately want. Intimacy is what we want. And pornography moves us away from those things. So here's a couple things. And by the way, these aren't things that you, that you they, these are things you already know, all right? But it's, it's important that because um, I haven't talked about porn all year, so this is my chance, okay? <laughs> so here we go. Uh, first, it rewires our brains. 
Um, pornography releases all kinds of chemicals into our body, which you know about, dopamine, oxytocin, adrenaline, and it, and it's, and it just it opens up the reward center in our brain, and it's very, very powerful. The drugs released are so powerful. And these drugs that God created to be re- released in the, in, in the process of arousal and sexual intimacy are designed to be powerful because it's supposed to connect you to another person. You're literally supposed to become hooked to another human being in a really beautiful way. But taken out of that context, now we become addicted not to a person, but we become addicted to the substances themselves. We become addicted essentially uh, to our own feelings and desires and to ourselves, which can become so, so dangerous. And like all addictions to substances, it always demands more and more. We know that about addictions, right? Uh, If you're addicted to alcohol, you need to drink. You might start out as a lightweight, and maybe one is enough. But after a while, one isn't enough. You got to do two. And then after a while, two isn't enough. You got to do three. And so porn is no different. And so the more and more we get addicted to those substances, the more and more and more you have to, you have to look at, the more violent the porn has to become, the more misogynistic the, the porn has to become, the more taboo the porn has to become, the more illegal and illicit and explicit the porn has to become in order for you to, to reach those, those same levels. And it just leads, it leads, it leads nowhere good. Nowhere good. Um, Number two, it distorts our sexual tastes and creates unrealistic expectations. Distorts our tastes and create unrealistic expectations. Um, Porn is literally forming what men and women expect from the sexual experience, and it leaves us us disappointed. Uh, My son just turned 10, and I took him to McDonald's. And we've taken him to McDonald's before. Um, I'm an American, okay? So we've taken him there before, but he's never had a Big Mac before. And so it was his 10th birthday. We're like, where do you want to go? And he had just seen a commercial for, for McDonald's. And so he's like, Dad, I want a Big Mac, my first Big Mac. I'm like, all right, that's cool. I'll take my boy, get a Big Mac. So we went down to McDonald's right here on, on um, Barger. And we, uh, we sit down and he orders his Big Mac. And it comes in that like, you know, it's like it's, like it's proposing to you, you know, like when you open it up. <laughs> and it opens it up and he's like, he looks at me with disgust. He's like, Dad, this is not a Big Mac. This is like a small Mac. He was so disappointed because he's seeing the pictures on the, on the commercial. He's seeing the pictures on the window when he comes in. And so he's expecting like light beams to shoot out and it's going to be this gigantic guy. It's called a Big Mac for goodness sakes. And he's like, Dad, it is so small. Can we go to Northwest Burger, please? I'm like, oh, man. Too late. You already ordered. This is a life lesson, son. It's never like it is. It's never like it is in the commercial. It's never like it is on TV. And, uh, and obviously the same is true when it comes to pornography. Um, I have a quote from a study that was done. Uh, Women are generally portrayed in pornography as anxious for sex anywhere, at any time, with anyone. And they're delighted to go as long and aggressively as one man or multiple men want. They always climax, usually loudly and ecstatically, and then are immediately ready for more. They never get tired or sore. They never need a break. In fact, they never seem to need anything at all except endless sex. They are depicted as happy with whatever a man wants to do, even if it's dangerous, painful, or humiliating. In a recent survey of 16 to 18-year-old Americans, nearly every participant reported learning how to have sex by watching porn. And many of the young women said that they were pressured into, to play out the scripts their male partners had learned from porn. 
They felt badgered into having sex in uncomfortable positions, faking sexual responses, and consenting to unpleasant or painful acts. This is what happens when we let porn dictate and tell us what the sexual experience is supposed to be, and it leads to manipulation. Um, it just leads to a complete misunderstanding of, uh, of what it's supposed to look like when intimacy and, and friendship and responsibility and care, sacrificial love and care are taken out of the equation. It's left to this. Um, and sometimes we need to be reminded that, that, the, that porn is an industry and it's designed to make money, it's designed to sell products, it's designed to get us hooked on things so that we'll buy whatever that they're selling and also it's driven by actors and actresses who guess what, are acting. <laughs> they're acting. So it's not real, but we, we tend to go in and think that it's real. It's a little bit like me when I went to the gun range for the first time um, because I didn't grow up with guns, but I've seen lots of movies with guns. And I went to the gun range with some friends and you know, so I think I know what I'm doing and I pull it out and I just like instinctively wanna go like this. It's like, this is how it's done, right? And they just look at me like, so disappointed in me. Unrealistic. Number three is it dehumanizes and commodifies people. So porn teaches us to do. It literally teaches us to dehumanize and commodify people. It teaches us that people are to be used for our own desires rather than known and valued and lifted up. John Paul, uh, Pope John Paul II said this. He said, there's no dignity when the human dimension is eliminated from the person. In short, listen, this is actually super profound. The problem with pornography is not that it shows too much of the person, but that it shows far too little. It shows far too little. Um, one report said this, in one experiment, the brains of men were scanned while they, while they viewed porn. When neurologists looked at their brain scans, men's brains reacted to women as if they were objects, not people. This is important because it's the process of dehumanizing a person that makes violence against them much more acceptable. Um, a, a quote from Bill Margold, who produces adult films, um, he says this, he says, by the way, this comes from a book by a guy named Chris Hedges called Empires of Illusion. Chapter two in Chris Hedges' book, Empires of Illusion, is about pornography, and it is not for the faint of heart. It will, it, it will cause you, it'll cause you discomfort when reading it. It gives you a behind-the-scenes view of what actually happens behind the camera and after the scenes are, are filmed in the porn industry, and it will break your heart and make you profoundly sad and will make you go to your face in repentance if you read that chapter. But there's this quote from Bill Margle, the film, adult film producer. He says in the book, he says, My whole reason for being in the industry is to satisfy the desire of the men in the world who basically don't care much for women and want to see the men in my, and I want to see the men in my industry getting even with the women that they couldn't have when they were growing up. We're helping them, uh, we're helping them uh, get even for all their lost dreams, he says. We're helping them get even for all their lost dreams. Pornography today is feeding misogyny. It's, it's a direct correlation with the rise of sex trafficking, with violence towards women, with rape culture, and the list goes on and on on. Number four, it also inhibits us from actually enjoying sexual pleasure with a person. It inhibits us from actually enjoying sexual pleasure with a person. I had tons of different, um, of different uh, um, 
percentages and surveys that they've done about erectile dysfunction. I'm not gonna share them all with you today, but here's, the, here's the, the, the big look of it all, is that erectile dysfunction is an epidemic that's sweeping. Um, it used to be with older, older gentlemen, and it's not that way anymore. It's incredibly on the rise for men in their 30s and men in their 20s and men in their teens. And it's because of this pervasive just uh, saturation of looking at porn and the porn doesn't, this kind of porn doesn't do it anymore so you gotta do this and gotta do this and gotta do this till you get to the point where, well, I'll read this quote. It says this, today the average age that a boy first encounters pornography is nine years old. By the time he's an adult, he has been consuming porn for more than a decade. How does this affect his relationships with, with real women? With, with real women. Time Magazine reports that many of them are simply unable to experience a sexual response with a, with a real live woman. They're only able to respond to pornography. In fact, they prefer it. In other words, they prefer not going to the trouble of dealing with a real person. When these men marry, they are shocked, shocked to discover that porn has destroyed their ability to relate to their spouse. It has trained them to objectify the opposite sex. They, are li they literally don't know how to relate to a woman as a full person. Again, guys, the question isn't, let's, let's, let's just talk about sin. Stay away from sin, people. No, no, no. The better question is, who are we becoming by what we're doing? How does this form us and shape us? Uh, number five, it compounds loneliness. Pornography compounds loneliness, and they've done tons of studies on this, and not even Christian studies, but they've done tons of studies about how pornography use is linked to depression in today's youth. It's linked to suicidal thoughts in today's youth. It's, it's linked to all sorts of different things in today's youth, and it's just causing more and more people to become lonelier, lonely than ever. Also, it's just a topic that is just hard to talk about produces a lot of shame in people. Like, I can't bring this up because what do people think about me? And unfortunately, guys, in church world, it's even heightened. People just feel like they can't talk about their struggles in this area because what do people think? And so it just goes down deeper and deeper and deeper. It causes people to just bottle it up and keep it down. It just causes so much shame that it just compounds and compounds loneliness and pushes people away. Um, Jonathan Grant, this book, Divine Sex, it was one of the books that I was reading in Starbucks. It's, it's, a, it's a must read, it was so good. He says this, we cannot keep sexual fantasy as a separate compartment in our lives, neatly sealed off from, uh, from our other relationships. That is an illusion. Online pornography makes it difficult for a user to stay present in his or her flesh and blood relationships. Sexual fantasy generates a destructive loop by shaping our expectations for real life relationships while also displacing those very relationships. And guys, um, I'm almost done on my talk about porn, okay? <laughs> and we'll move on. Uh, but guys, it's just getting started. You know, the porn industry has exploded in these last, you know, 20 years since the internet has been so available. Um, but it's estimated that within the next 10 years, with the advent of accessible and affordable virtual reality technology that the porn industry will double, if not triple, if not quadruple. And so it's just very, very important and present that we as Christ followers, that we just have to ask, Lord, who am I becoming by what I'm doing? How is this shaping me? And what do I want to be shaped by most? Do I want to be shaped by pornography and what it says about me and what it says about the world and what it says about others? Or do I want to be shaped by what you say about me? 
Do I want you to be the main shaper in my life or do I want other things to be the main shaper? By the way, guys, there is hope. Guys and gals, there is hope, hope, hope here. Jesus offers a better, a better way. He offers, uh, he offers uh, a healing. He offers uh, redemption in this area. We, there is good news for all of us. But you can't talk about sex or you can't talk about masturbation, or sorry, about porn unless you talk about masturbation. Sorry. So I got to take a moment and talk about masturbation. I know what you guys are thinking. Are we literally in a room right now together talking about masturbation? Yes, we are. This is happening, okay? This is real. Um, the Bible, guys, doesn't talk about masturbation. Um, so it's just, it's, it's kind of a weird area to, to, to wade into. There are a couple kind of shady Old Testament situations where you read it and you're like, oh, I don't know if that's what it's about. Um, but those aren't necessarily about that. Um, so the Bible doesn't really talk about it, but our boy C.S. Lewis does. All right. So we're going to read a quote from C.S. Lewis on his take on pornography because I just think it's brilliant. And what C.S. Lewis does here is he uses this idea, idea that I introduced a couple weeks ago called uh, that historians have used to try to explain sex and it's, or, or sorry, to try to explain sin in our lives, pardon me. And uh, it's this Latin phrase, incurvatus in se. And it means that, that the, the kind of basement level of sex is, or sorry, the basement level of sin rather, if they're both S words that are three letters long, okay? Um, the, the basement idea of sin is that it's, it causes us to fold inward. Incurvate say means to fold in on yourself. That instead of love being pointed outward towards other-centered sacrificial love, that what sin does is it points ourselves in, into ourselves, kind of like a black hole. And it just sucks instead of, instead of gives. And so this is the idea that C.S. Lewis picks up on. And he's, he's writing a letter to a, a young American that had some questions about this. And so this is in one of his letters that he wrote. And he says this, um, he says, for me, the real evil of masturbation would be that it takes an appetite, which in lawful use leads the individual out of himself or herself to, to complete and correct by his own personality in that of another. And finally in children and even grandchildren, he is, that's, that's the sort of like the lawful use, but what masturbation does is it turns it backwards. It sends the man back into the prison of himself, there to keep a harem of imaginary brides. And this harem, once admitted, works against his ever getting out and really uniting with a real woman. For the harem is always accessible, always subservient calls for no sacrifices or adjustments and can be endowed with erotic and psychological attractions which no real woman can rival. Among those shadowy brides, he is always adored, always the perfect lover. No demand is made on his unselfishness, no mortification ever imposed on his vanity. And in the end, they become merely the medium through which he, is in he increasingly adores himself. And then he finishes, he says, after all, almost the main work of life is to come out of ourselves, out of the little dark prison we are all born in. Masturbation is to be avoided as all things are to be avoided, which retard this process. The danger is that of coming, of, of coming to love the prison. That's brilliant. You see what he's doing there? He's saying that what this does, what masturbation does, looking at porn mas masturbation, it takes something that God created to be this beautiful thing that was supposed to be pointed outward towards the other to, in sacrificial care and sacrificial love. And what it does is it turns it around and it makes us go back into the prison of self. And he ends by saying that the big danger is that 
you can end up loving the prison. You end up, you end up, you end up loving the shadow instead of the substance. That's a dangerous thing. Um, guys, this is happening all over the world, but it's certainly happening in Japan. Um, I read an article um, about what's happening in Japan. Did you know that there's actually a crisis happening in Japan? Um, they actually have a name for it. It's a, uh, it's a, it's a syndrome called celibacy syndrome. Um, they call it Sukusu Shania Shokugan. And literally, people are not getting married and having sex with each other in Japan. And the, the, the birth rate is going down. So much so, listen to this, this quote. For their government, celibacy syndrome is part of a looming national catastrophe. Japan already has one of the world's lowest birth rates. Its population of 126 million, which has been shrinking for the past decade, is projected to plunge a further one-third by 2060. The country is, and here's a quote, is experiencing a flight from human intimacy. Um, and here's a quote from that, from, that, uh, from that same article, a young man that they were asking about, like, how come you're not getting married? How come you're not pursuing relationships? Here's what he says. He says, relationships are just too much to deal with. I'd rather just look at porn and masturbate instead of actually having to deal with the real woman. Why even bother? It's just easier. I don't, have to, I don't have to change. I don't have to move out of mom's basement. I don't have to, I don't have to, I don't have to actually grow. I don't actually have to, have to be challenged in any way. Because you know what? Relationships will do that to you and it's hard, but it's beautiful. It forms you and shapes you. But when you say, you know, I'm just not even gonna bother, you just go, you just end up loving the prison within. We do not want to go down where that road leads. And so again, the question isn't like, is masturbation a sin or not? We could, we could answer that question probably, but listen, step back from that. Let's just ask ourselves, who are we becoming by what we're doing? And do we, and do we want to become like that? The power that it has to shape us and form us is tremendous. Um, next, in my uh, non-existent time that I have left, um, I want to talk about online dating culture. Um, how does online dating work in the midst of all this? Because, you know, you might ask yourself, like, okay, so with all this stuff, like, how does dating work? Um, dating isn't in the Bible, all right? So we can't go to a passage of Scripture where it talks about dating in the Bible. Um, listen, I have no problems with online dating. So many people find their, uh, their a person online nowadays. Actually, I found a quote that says, uh, trends over the, the last decade suggest that digital matchmaking will soon be the dominant way that relationships come into being. One author says that online dating represents a shift as significant as the sexual revolution of the 1960s in changing our approach to love and romance. Um, it's just a new world when it comes to meeting other people. So what are we to think of, of all that? Um, you know, marriages are, used to be arranged for centuries, and then it moved into the season of courtship. But the word dating didn't actually show up in print until the year 1914. And so the idea of how we do dating today is just, just different than it was before. Um, here's a quote by John Tyson. He says, dating changed the game because both man and woman removed themselves from the family construct by putting themselves in fantasy environments which no marriage is really like or can sustain over time. And then they put on their best foot, again, that which they cannot sustain. And then they form lifetime commitments out of that framework. As dating spread throughout society, it individualized the process. It put the focus on romance, removed the emphasis on friendship, and character assessment gave way to spending money, being seen, and having fun. 
This ultimately led to hookup culture, which has given way to app culture. Um, and so basically, uh, what I want to say about the whole, you know, app culture and like, you know, I, listen, I've been married for 16 years. I've never swiped left or right on any app, okay? I don't even know how it works, but here's what I know is that what we have today with dating culture and app culture is, is what happens when you take dating and you mix it with consumerism. This thing that we have with products where I, there's so many options out there with products that I'm always going to find the, the newest model. I've always got to find the model that's going to be, get me the best price and isn't going to require too much demand from me. Um, this is what consumerism does in, in our world. I mean, it works with products, okay? It works with products. But when it comes to human beings, what it tends, what it will end up doing is it'll actually work against us and people actually finding relationships that are whole and fulfilling and life-giving. Um, one person described app culture with dating as Amazon for delivering you hot people. <laughs> that's, what, that's what dating apps are like. Um, and so what's dangerous is that if one relationship doesn't work out, that's okay. There's a lot more fish in the sea. It's just really easy to find another option. Um, from one article, or actually from this book, from again, from that Divine Sex book by Jonathan Grant, um, he talks about this, talks about this guy named Jacob. After a couple of years, the relationship seemed to be coming to an end, this relationship that Jacob had with, with this girl. Rather than trying to work things out, as he would have done previously, Jacob let the relationship lapse because... Having met Rachel so easily online, he felt that he could just as easily find someone else. He even reactivated his online dating subscription on the day they broke up, noting that the options had gotten significantly better during the two years that he had been off the website. When I sensed the breakup coming, I was okay with it, he says. I was eager to see what else was out there. Um, there's a really, really interesting article in uh, Vanity Fair that came out about Tinder and like the whole like sort of app culture. And so here's just a couple, couple quotes from that and then I'm gonna wrap it up for us this morning, okay? Um, here's a quote from this guy named Nick. Nick says, I'm on Tinder, Happen, Hinge, OkCupid. It's just a numbers game. Before I could go out to a bar and talk to one girl, but now I can sit at home on Tinder and talk to 15 girls. Guys view everything as a competition, he elaborates with his deep, reassuring voice. Who's slept with the best, hottest girls? With these dating apps, he says, you're always sort of prowling. You can talk to two or three girls at a bar and pick the best one, or you can swipe a couple hundred people a day. The sample size is so much larger. It's setting up two or three Tinder dates a week, and chances are sleeping with all of them. So you could rack up 100 girls you've slept with in a year. He says that he himself has slept with five different women he met on Tinder, Tinderellas, the guys call them, in the, in the last eight days. Another quote, but Marty, who prefers Hinge to Tinder, is no slouch at racking up girls. He says he's slept with 30 to 40 women in the last year. I sort of play that I could be a boyfriend kind of guy in order to win them over, but then they just start wanting me to care more, and I just don't, he says. Last quote, it's from a girl. She says, it's rare for a woman in our generation to meet a man who treats her like a priority instead of an option. And that's what happens when consumerism and dating culture blend together. Now people are just a means to an end. People are just an option. It becomes a way like Amazon to deliver you people. And when you're done with them, guess what? There's always another one out there for you. And we wonder why people don't know how to make commitments. And we're expecting young people to grow up in this culture, in this world where that becomes the thing. And then 
We just expect them to magically just turn a corner and understand, oh, this is what it looks like to live in a humble, committed relationship where I am sacrificially laying my life down for another person. If we're expecting that to happen like that, it will not happen. But guys, again, who are we becoming by what we're doing? Jesus steps into the middle of all of this, and he has a better way. He has a better way. He wants to form you. He wants to form me in a way that actually leads us to deeper intimacy, actually leads us to the thing we ultimately all want, others-centered, sacrificial love, intimacy, joy. That's what he wants to lead us into. That's what he wants to form us into. And so, listen, um, you might be sitting here today, and this is a topic that causes so much shame in people. It's a topic that even as I'm talking about it, it perhaps in some of us it's bringing up some things. I don't know what it's bringing up. But I have the sense that when, as a pastor, guys, I've been a pastor for a long time. Whenever I talk about this kind of stuff, it always just causes people to get to that place where they think, you know what? I hear what you're saying, pastor. I hear that Jesus loves me and all. But, but seriously, seriously, you have no idea what I've done. You have no idea the decisions I've made. Or even if it wasn't decisions you've made, and maybe there's, there's some of us here with sexual abuse in your past. There's just all sorts of knots tied up in your life. And you're, there's no doubt there's some of us just sitting here this morning that would say, listen, I hear what you're saying, Pastor. He wants to form us. He loves us, blah, blah, blah. But can he really love me? Can he really love me? Does he really accept me? Does he really want to give me grace? And I just want you to see the Jesus that we worship, guys. When you see Jesus in the New Testament, what do you see? You see, remember in John 4, J Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman at the well. She's an outcast. She has had five ma failed marriages, and the guy that she's with, she's not married to, and she's living with. And Jesus goes to her and see the grace that he has. See how he speaks to her. He doesn't come in and he's, he doesn't wag his finger. He doesn't come in and say, you should have made better choices. He just comes in and he says, hey, listen, I have a question for you. How is all of that working for you? Or has life left you thirsty? Are you thirsty? Yes, she says. She just says, I'm thirsty. And Jesus says, then come to me. I am the living water. I'm the living water. The thirst that you've been trying to quench with all these other relationships and all these other guys, he goes, those things will always leave you thirsty. But you come to me and you admit your thirst. And I will get, I myself, I will be a well that will cause you to fill in those holes and you won't be thirsty again. And she leaves and she goes back to her village. And do you remember what she says when she goes back to her village? She goes to all the people in her village and she says, you, you got to come meet this guy. He just told me everything I've ever done. And you can imagine the people in the village are probably like, yeah, everybody knows what you, everything you've done. Because she was probably a woman in that culture that would have had a reputation. But, you know, in this situation, it was good news for her because Jesus was offering her an invitation. And you know what happened is everybody came because she heard her testimony that here's a guy you got to meet, that he, he knew everything about me. He knew my sexual past. He knew my sexual history. He knows all that stuff, but you've got to meet him because he is offering an invitation. And everybody in the village came and that village was saved. They met Jesus. Something that Satan would have used for evil, Jesus in that moment turned and used it for beauty and good because he was offering an invitation. When Jesus meets the woman who's accused of adultery, what does Jesus do? He steps between her and her accusers. 
And he says, where are the people that condemn you? She goes, they've gone, sir. And he says, that's right. And I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. Be changed. Let me form you. Let me shape you. Guys, if Jesus responds that way to them, he wants to respond that way to you. He wants to give you grace today. He wants to give you hope. He wants to give you life in the midst of all of this crazy brokenness that our culture's in. He wants to restore us and make us whole.